elephant in the room. Uh, we got a stage. Shout out. Can you give it up for Matt and Sammy? Today in, in their uh, front yard. So we were starting to get too big. Wanted the back row guys to see us or see us up here. So excited to get rolling and uh, excited to keep going in our series of Be Real. Of Be Real. And so what I understand about Be Real is there's an element of authenticity to this social media, right? There's an aspect of, of an outward and an inward, and you it basically it brings more of like a real life, a more authentic view of ourselves and of our lives, and I think that it really creates kind of like a paradigm shift, right? Where you actually get to see somebody's life and you see it for what it actually is, and so that's kind of what we were thinking about with this series of being real is like that paradigm shifts uh, come in a lot of different ways, and I think one of the ways you guys are experiencing paradigm shifts right now is even just coming to college. And so I was thinking through, man, what are a couple uh, college paradigm shifts, even for some people coming into college? Uh, a couple I was thinking of here, uh, first one was home-cooked meals. Home-cooked meals. High school, I was always trying to get out of any home-cooked meal I could. I wanted to go eat with my boys out of like Lion's Choice. For any St. Louis people, Lion's Choice? Yes, yes. Three of us? Okay. Got a thumbs down back there. So, hey, I was always trying to get out of home-cooked meals because I just want to go eat with my boys. I wanted to go eat with the guys. Now I'm like, dude, I would do anything go home and get home cooked meal. Anybody feel that right now? They're like, man, I would go yeah, home. Don't even care what. My mom made stuffed peppers. I would eat stuffed peppers right now. I did not like stuffed peppers growing up. Paradigm shift. It changed your perspective on it. Uh, another one. Walking on campus. Uh, maybe you were like me and had no idea when you came to KU that it was on a literal mountain in the middle of Kansas. Like, who knew? In Kansas, biggest hill, our campus, literally. And uh, was not ready for it. You know, everybody envisions uh, over the summer, oh man, I just can't wait for fall walks on campus, right? You're picturing 70 degrees, hoodie, shorts. But when it's 95, feels like 102, and you've got that sweat dripping down your back, under your backpack, you're like, you're rethinking life. You're like, man, I don't know about these walks on campus. I was pumped for it, but I'm not feeling walks on campus right now. You guys might be thinking about a parking pass for next semester, apparently, about walking on campus. Uh, last one, hey, you might have come here for basketball, but paradigm shift, we're a football school, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or was the paradigm shift back to reality when you realized that we pounded a tech school from Tennessee? That might have been the paradigm shift back. Doesn't matter. Probably one of the worst teams in football, but uh, hey, and maybe that was your paradigm shift. Back to reality, but it feels good, right? Pounding uh, Tennessee Tech um, big. And so, those are just a couple paradigm shifts that you guys might be having uh, starting out the school year. Uh, but even in the series, like we were talking about, of Be Real, we think there's going to be some even paradigm shifts for some of us in regards to God. And the question we're going to hit tonight, and hoping there's some paradigm shifts maybe, is who is God really? Who is God really? Uh, A.W. Tozer, a famous author, said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. The most important thing. That's a crazy, crazy statement. And, uh, and some might agree, some might disagree, but if anybody's going to be bold enough to make that claim, we want to know if our perspective on God is right. We want to know if we have a true, clear perspective of Him. 
And uh, because how we view God impacts things, right? The, the way we view anything impacts the way that we live. The way we view God, something that big, it really has a downstream effect and it should impact the way that we live. And so that's what we're going to dive into a little bit uh, tonight. And I know even when I say the word God or when I say Jesus, a lot of you guys have a paradigm. You've kind of got a box that you immediately put God in, you immediately put Jesus into. Uh, maybe it's a distant God that made us and kind of doesn't want anything to do with us anymore. Maybe it's like the picture of a genie in the bottle where you, man, you got a, a big test, you've got a, a big day. Maybe you go through a hard breakup or something like that and you go to God and ask for something and if you've been good enough, He'll give it to you. Maybe that's your paradigm of God. Uh, maybe it's the paradigm that He's kind of a fun sucker. Maybe that God is real, but the life that He offers, maybe it doesn't, it doesn't uh, I don't want it, it doesn't really line up with who I am. And so we all have different paradigms, different pictures of who we think God is. And I know for me growing up, um, I would have been probably with that last paradigm. I knew a lot about God, head level, but it really didn't impact my life. And I really didn't know who he truly was. And uh, I really thought that the life that God wanted to give was just going to clash against the life that I wanted to live. I thought the Bible was just going to tell me not to do things that I wanted to do. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't know if I'm ready for that life. And I really came to college trying to dodge um, God because I didn't have a clear understanding of who he was. And there's probably a lot of people in this room who have that same lens, that, that same thought. That's what you guys are thinking coming into college. And I think the amazing thing is that God doesn't leave us in the dark about who he is. He doesn't want us to just walk through life continuing to have that question, hey, who is God? Who is God really? And uh, the Bible really is the main way that God uh, wants to disclose himself. He wants to reveal himself to us. And there's an amazing promise in Jeremiah 29, which says this. It says... You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's an amazing promise. God says, hey, come after me. If you really want to know the answer to the question, who is God really? He's given us the Bible. He's given us this book that's more like a library of 66 books that all show who God is and how he interacts with mankind. God's like, hey, come, come learn who I am. I've written a whole library of books about it. And so that's what we're going to dive into tonight. And we're going to look at three different profiles. Three profiles of how God describes himself in the Bible. And the three that we're going to look at are that God says he is a father. God says he is a king. God says that he is a friend. And so hopefully uh, this, uh, three, these three things really shed light on who is God really. I think as you walk out of here understanding and knowing from the Bible who God says that he is. And so... The first one that we're going to dive into here is God describes himself as a father. He describes himself as a father. And I know that even when we bring up this idea of dads in a room this size, we've probably got a broad spectrum of just even our relationships uh, with our dads. I know a lot of us maybe haven't had great dads or haven't had great relationships with our dads. Some of us might not have even met our dads before. And so I know there's a broad spectrum when we bring up that idea. Uh, but there's a temptation where there's a temptation to the way we view our dads here on earth is kind of how we project um, God to be. And, uh, and that's kind of a temptation we all fall into. And even those who have had great dads, some of us may have had great dads, none of us have had a perfect dad. And the amazing claim that God says in the Bible, he says, hey, I'm a perfect father. I'm a perfect father. That is a wild claim um, to have. 
He says that, hey, I'm a perfect father in every way that you can imagine. He deals with his children with perfect character and with perfect love. And I was thinking, I just went through, I did like a minute-long brainstorm of, man, okay, what are all of the verses, all the ways that God um, describes himself? I just got 12. I probably could have kept going. But just in a minute, here's all of, or just 12 of the ways that God would describe himself as a father in the Bible. He says, I'm patient. I'm powerful. I'm gentle. I love unconditionally. I'm forgiving. I'm faithful. I'm generous. I'm compassionate, merciful, strong, caring, and kind. And that's amazing. God says, hey, hey, think of what you think of a perfect dad. Take those qualities, and that's me. God makes that claim in the Bible. It's an amazing thing. He says, hey, I'm a perfect father. In Matthew 7, 7 through 11, he kind of hits on some of his attributes of this perfect father. He says, as a perfect, perfect father, he listens to us, and he's also a gift giver. And so the first couple verses say, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. And so we see some cool things about God here. We see that when we ask, things are given. That when we seek, we find. And that when we knock, God actually opens doors. And I think the takeaway from this is God is responsive. God is responsive when we come to him, when we try to communicate with him, which is so different than God being distant. He didn't just create us and just leave us. He's saying, hey, communicate with me. Come, come to me even with desires. He's a perfect father in that way, in that he is responsive. Uh, when I think about a dad that's uh, eager like this to respond, I honestly think of my dad. Um, here's a recent picture of us. Um, no, I was kidding. He wouldn't be 10 feet tall. He, he's a big dude. He's a big dude. 6'6". Six, six, but this is obviously a while ago. Probably one of my favorite pictures. I look tiny. Every time I see it, I'm like, how big is this guy next to me? But uh, my dad, awesome guy. I think my dad is the fastest text responder ever. <laughs> ever. It is unbelievable. I mean, under five seconds every single time I send him a text. He's got, he's got me on reds. And so I literally, I will send that thing. Send, bam, red. I'm like... I know you're at work. I know you're in a meeting. I, I, I really think he's in a meeting, and he's got my thread up on the phone, and he's in a meeting throughout the day. There's no other way. He'd respond, and he would look at my text that quickly. And I was thinking about that. I was like, man, I think that resembles God. I think that resembles God and our interaction with him. I mean, he is constantly wanting us to come to him. He's constantly wanting us to ask things of him. He's waiting for us. To communicate with him. He's a good father. He wants to spend time with us and for us to communicate and ask things of him. And so God is responsive, but he's not only responsive, he's also a gift giver. And the passage goes on to say, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts? To those who ask him. And so we see from this passage, God loves giving gifts. He loves giving gifts to his children. And he says here, he says, hey, even a, even a bad dad knows how to give a good gift. But he says, I'm an amazing dad, and I give amazing gifts. And the reason that he's able to give good gifts is God's, he's just got a different vantage point. Right? He's got a full vantage point of our lives and the world. He knows our hearts. He knows our deepest longings. He knows our potential. 
He knows things about us that we don't even know about ourselves. And that gives him an amazing perspective to not just give us what we want or gifts that might even be harmful to us, but actually give us gifts that we actually need. You know, I ask God a lot of times for probably things I don't need. Hey, God, let me win the lottery. God doesn't give that to me. He knows I'd probably be a jerk if I had millions of dollars or something like that. He spares me of that. God, hey, help me score all of my team's points at the wreck in this basketball game right now. He's never answered it. Never will. Doesn't even get close. Because he knows I can't handle that. I can't have my pride would flare. I'd, I'd get too full of myself. I'd be a horrible teammate on the basketball court. He doesn't answer that because he knows what are good gets and what would actually impact us in a harmful way. And so the vantage point of God being all-knowing allows for him to provide and give amazing gifts as a father. And some of you guys are probably experiencing even some of those gifts come to college. Maybe you, you know, found an amazing group of friends that you got connected with. And maybe that group of friends is actually coming with you to late night and you're all getting to dive into faith um, together. Maybe it's an older mentor as a gift who's able to help walk you through college and help you grow while you're here. Whatever it is, God is constantly... Uh, giving things to those who follow him. Not just things that they want, but things that they actually need because of his perspective. And uh, I experienced a little bit of this this past Christmas uh, because I've got someone who's got a very unique vantage point on my life right now. And so, it's this lady. Uh, really just an excuse to put up that picture because for obvious reasons. Uh, but, uh, no, being married to her, man, she sees the ins and the outs of my life. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything, okay? and uh, But she also sees my gaps. She sees my gaps in my life. And I don't know if there's any el- anybody else out here that's like this, but anytime there's Christmas, birthday, people are like, hey, what do you want, what do you want for Christmas? What do you want for birthday? I go blank. I'm like, man, I don't, I don't know. I feel like, I like look around, I'm like, I feel like I've got basically what I need. I got my shoes, got my shirt, food in the fridge most of the time. I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't really need it. I, I always, I'm always blank. I'm like, I don't know. I don't think I need anything. And uh, she saw right through that this past Christmas, and uh, she got me one of these. A nice suitcase. I'm like, I would have never thought to get this in a million years. Literally. I would have never thought that I actually needed a suitcase. And uh, I've literally used a black Puma gym bag as my suitcase for like years. I haven't thought anything of it. I would, I would be a 30-year-old here in a couple years still traveling the world with this little gym bag. If it wasn't for her, she saw right through. She sees my life. She's got a full vantage point, And she knows not just things that I want, but she knows things that I need. She, feel, she fills my gaps in ways that I'm unaware of. In a lot of ways, God's a gift giver like that. He wants to give us things, not just that we want, but even more than that, better than that, He wants to give us things that we actually need. And so that's, that's God as a Father, um, that He is a gift giver and He is responsive to us. So the first thing, God is a Father. Second profile we'll look at here is that God is a King. God describes Himself as a King. In two specific ways, He says, Hey, I am King over creation. And I'm king over my people. And the passage that kind of explains this dual-headed kingship is Psalm 95, 3-7. It says this. It says, For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed 
the dry land. And so we see here that God is king. He is king over all of creation, meaning that he created it. He sustains it. And he is all-knowing, all-powerful, and he's everywhere in his creation. That his, his thumbprint is on everything. And uh, I think one of the coolest times that God speaks in the Bible uh, is actually when he shoots this guy straight named Job. Okay, and so kind of puts Job in his place. Job is, is uh, kind of talking back to God. And God, in like the most wise way, I feel like, he's like, uh, hey, hey, Job. He says, hey, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth and marked off its dimensions? He says, or when I shut up the doors of the ocean and closed them off. When I said to the ocean, hey, you can come this far, but no further. He says, hey, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or the storehouses of the hail? Have you ever told where lightning, where to hit? Does rain have a father? Who, who fathers the drops of dew? Um, who put the stars in the constellations? Were you there when I did that? I'm like, man, I would hate to be Job in that moment, right? Like, you just got, like, my drop of the century, you just got told, hey, were you here when I made you? Were you here when I did all these things? And God, in that moment, he says, hey, everything you see, I'm king over it, and I created it, and I continue to sustain it. Every atom uh, in our bodies or around the world, every uh, law of nature, every animal, every star in the sky, every breath in our lungs is, is God continuing this on. Every baby formed in the womb, God is king over all of these things, and he sustains it uh, by his power and by his will. God is creator. He is king because he's creator over everything. But he's not only king because of creation, but specifically he's king over his people. King over creation, but also king of his people. And so the passage goes on to say this. It says, Psalm 95, this is the other, the second half. It says, come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. And these verses say that because God is our maker, and he's king over all these things, He's worthy for us to kneel, to willingly say, hey, hey, you, you are a king. I mean, you're over everything. And he said, hey, my, my life, I want it to come under your will because you're king. You're, you're creator of the entire world. And as people in the West, and especially in the U.S., uh, statistically, the U.S. has the lowest um, regard for authority than any nation in the world ever, in the history of time. And uh, so when we read verses like that, this whole idea of trusting a king, um, it's kind of a foreign idea to, idea to us, right? We've probably all experienced in some way a bad leader, and we kind of peg that on God. Oh, if he's king, surely he's like X, Y, Z. He's like this person. But God has a blank slate, and really the slate that he has is who he says he is as king in the Bible. You see, for thousands of years ago when this was written, um, the king would have been viewed as almost a shepherd of the people. Like it says, that, that the king, hey, there, there's people in his pasture. There's a flock under his care. And basically what a king would say back in this day when this was written was, hey, I, I'm king over these people. I, I'm choosing these people. I'm going to protect them. I'm going to provide for them. I'm going to care for them, love them, guide them to prosperity as a nation. And so in Psalms, when this is talking about a king, that's the vantage point. It's a good king, and a lot of times in these nations, when there's a good king, people love this king. 
there was allegiance, there was loyalty, there was honor, and people were just willingly giving this king because of how he protected and how he provided for these people. And so God, he describes himself, he says, hey, I'm a good king, I'm worthy of, of bowing to, of bringing your life under, because he has our best interest in mind. God's worthy of our lives because he's got our best interest in mind, he wants what's best for us. And, and, and coming under a king like that, it wouldn't be burdensome. It would actually be opposite. Having a king like that on your side would be your greatest asset to living a full life. Uh, I was hearing recently, I heard this story of, of a wild horse. Okay, and I'm going to tell you just a little bit of this story. There's a story about this horse, and this horse just wanted to be free. Okay, he just wanted to be free to do whatever he wanted to do. And people were always trying to capture this horse and bring it in. And tame it. And the horse, in its freedom, when it was a free, just wild horse, it had to work for its food. It had to find its food. It had to go and find and seek out water. It had to find shelter from the elements. But it was free. It was free to go do whatever it wanted to do. Um, it could go anywhere. It was a free horse. But there was a drought in the land. And the food supply dried up. And the horse became weak. And it became a frail and this local farmer was able to, found this weak, frail horse, was able to get a rope around it and actually bring it back to his home, put it in a pen, and he started to care for it. He started to care for this horse that just wanted to be wild, wanted to go free. He started to care for it, provide for it. And when this farmer would, would ride this horse and take it out of the pen, he would go, he would lead the horse to water. He would lead the horse to its food. He would provide it its shelter. And so the horse had everything that it needed in this farmer. And I think what we learn about from this story is that it wasn't until the horse was fully compliant with this farmer, it wasn't until he fully surrendered to this farmer that he actually got to experience the farmer as being good for him, as being the provider for him. He realized that the farmer was actually for his good and wanted to care for it. And when he made this switch, he may have lost, the horse may have lost some independence they lost independence of being wild, but what it gained was full life. What it gained uh, was, was everything that the farmer wanted to give it. And uh, this story reminds me a lot about how we interact with God as king. In a lot of ways, we're, we're like that horse, right? We just want freedom. We want a life of no restraints. Uh, but really, God, in this story, he's, he's the good farmer. He has all of these supplies, all of these assets that he wants to give. But all he wants us to do is to take ourselves off the throne. And say, okay, God, I'm going to give you my life. I'm putting you on the throne. Now. There can only be one person in our lives calling the shots. It's either us, ourselves, or it's God. And God, when he offers to be a good king towards us on the throne, he offers us everything. He wants to give us everything we need to have a satisfied life. And that's his offer as king. That's an offer that he wants to give us. And so the second thing, the second profile that God gives us is that he's a king. So he's a father. He's not only a good father, but he describes himself as a king. And he's not only a good king, but he also describes himself as a friend. As a friend. And the Bible says that there's something in between our friendship with God and us. That, that something wedges itself between us, and the Bible would call that sin. The Bible would call uh, sin as this thing that actually hinders this relationship that God created us to have with Him. In Colossians 1, 
21 says this. It describes um, the separation from God. It says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So this verse says, hey, because of our sin, we were actually separated from God. There was distance between us and God. And that word alienated, it basically means that we're, we've been shut out from one's presence. That our, our fellowship has been impeded. And that's really the problem of the world. The problem is the world is, is that we were created for a relationship with God. But our sin is the thing that separates us. It, it creates this distance between us and God. And the, the, the solution, the remedy, comes in this next verse. We need something to solve this distance from God. And the word, the key word in this next verse is reconcile. It's to be brought back into a right relationship with someone. And it says this, it says, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. And Carson's going to unpack this more next week, so make sure and come back and uh, hear what he's talking about. But the offer here, God says, hey, I want to reconcile you. I want to make things right. I want to be a friend of you. He says, hey, I've offered to do that through Jesus. He says, hey, I, I want to no longer, I don't want to see you for your blemishes. I'll no longer see you for your imperfections. I'll no longer see you for any of your sin, any of the things that stand in between. But he says, hey, for those who believe in Jesus, who put their trust in him, he says, hey, I'm going to see you as perfect, spotless, without blemish, no matter what happens, and in a right relationship with him. It's so hard to believe sometimes, even, even after following Christ, that God would continue to want to be a friend to us. But that's his promise. He says, I've taken that punishment for your sin on the cross. I want to be in a right relationship. I want to be a friend with you. And that's God's love. That's how he showed his love to us in John 15, 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this. There's no greater way to show love than that he laid down his life for his friends. And that's Jesus. He, he laid down his life for friends so that we could know him and be in a relationship with him. You can't do anything more loving than to lay down your life for a friend. And it shows the links that God wants to know us. That he would, he would lay down his own son so that he could be in a relationship with with you and I. He wants to do life with us. He wants to be involved in our day-to-day, -day, in the highs and the lows, everything in between. He wants to be a friend. He wants to be a better friend than any of us could even imagine any friends that we've ever had before. A friend that never leaves, that never forsakes, that's always there with us. And that's God's offer. He wants to be a good friend to us, but the thing that stands in between, he wants to reconcile through Jesus to, to begin that relationship um, with us. So God's offering to be a good friend. I've had a couple of great friends in my life. I probably showed this picture before. These are all my buddies. They're some of my buddies um, in college. And so most of these guys were in my fraternity uh, in college. One was in another house. Uh, I could tell you why all of these guys are amazing people. I'm not going to be weird and sentimental though, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scratch it. I'm not going to uh, tell you everything about them. But these, these are awesome guys. They all came to Christ in college, a huge reason why I grew and uh, one in particular is special. This is Hunter. So he's the guy who really led us all to Christ during college. And uh, Hunter uh, really showed me what God's friendship looked like. And what I mean by that is that Hunter tried to pursue me and be a friend to me way before I reciprocated and tried to be a friend um, to him. Uh, Hunter uh, basically did the fraternity faith discussions in my house. 
And he was an older guy. I was skeptical of him. I was like, I don't know who this guy is. And so I was a little, little sus about who he was. And uh, my sophomore year, I uh, ended up giving my life to Christ. And Hunter very quickly became one of my best friends. It was his new, new life that I was trying to live. And he became one of my greatest assets of how I was going to grow in my faith. And, and we're such good friends to this day uh, that eight months ago, he actually got to officiate my wedding um, and stand next to me on that day, which is like comeback story of the century right here. I'm skeptical of this guy just as a person in general. And then he's standing next to me on my wedding day, you know, marrying my wife and I. And, uh, and when I think about Hunter, and when people ask me about Hunter, I'm like, oh, man, I love that guy. Like, one of my best friends, I'd take a bullet for him. I tell people that. I'm like, man, I love him. I would take a bullet for that guy because of what he's done for me. And that because he was a friend of me way before I reciprocated I'm like, man, I'm in debt to him. Like, he was so good to me. And what's crazy is that's what Jesus did for us. He loved us. He wanted to know us. And figuratively, he took the bullet for us on the cross, the, the punishment for our sins so that we could be in a relationship with him. He loved us first before we reciprocated it. And he wants to know us. And he went through whatever depths, whatever measure he needed to in order to bridge that gap. And I think that just shows, like, what true love is and how much God truly wants to be a friend to us, that he wanted a relationship with us so bad, he would go to drastic measures so that he could say, you're my friend. You are known by me, and you know me. And I think that's an amazing thing, that God would, would purchase a friendship for us to have in that way, to offer himself as a good friend, that he'll never leave us, never forsake us, and be a companion for the rest of our lives and into eternity. So those are just three profiles of, of who is God really.